0: Hello and welcome to Just Keep Riding While Black, a podcast for writers
1: by writers
0: to keep you writing. I'm Marshall. I'm L. And I'm Britt. And joining us this week, that voice you just heard is LD Lewis. Thank you so much for the, being on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you.
1: Thank you for having me. This is um <laughs> this is this is yet another podcast that I'm doing all of a sudden. So uh, <laughs> excited to be on this side of the medium and not you know on the side that actually has to like orchestrate it.
2: <laughs> yeah no that 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 would fall to us to do all the orchestra yeah we'll do all that yeah <laughs> so but. um i will take it away with um my introduction i will try to keep it short so um <laughs> okay <so, laughs> well and i'm laughing because me and, me and el have been friends for so long i can probably just keep talking forever but um <laughs> Yeah, we've been friends, uh, shit, I don't know, what, seven years now? About seven, six, like that, something like that. Yeah, right, yeah. So um, when I was very much a naive young writer and didn't know anything about the industry or any, I mean, literally anything, um, I was invited into a writing group. And one of those people in that writing group happened to be Elle. And I think we were exchanging stories to, like, BETA. And I completely lost my shit and fanboyed out and persistently was like DMing her about this story. And um, we kind of became friends from there. And uh, eventually we were part of the founding of Fire Magazine, which by the way, just won a Hugo.
0: Congratulations. Um,
2: Yeah. So that's awesome. And uh, I wanted to bring LD on here today because... You know, um, she does a huge amount of community work. If you if you follow anything about like the amount of um, initiatives that have happened to try to help Black writers secure a more stable place in science fiction and fantasy, LD was probably a part of it in some way, shape, or form. But that tends to be what most people want to talk to her about. And in those conversations, they forget that she is a damn good writer too. And so today. I wanted to bring her on so we could talk about her writing for a change. So yeah, we're going to be focusing on that.
0: And real quick before, before we get to that, I did forget one thing. Um, I wanted to let people know this is going to be our last, just keep writing while black episode for the month of February for black history month. And so if you've been enjoying getting weekly episodes, please, um, you know, jump on our Patreon, jump in our discord, support the show um, and give us five stars uh five stars i don't know give us give us all the stars and write us a review and we'll read it on the show
2: <laughs> yeah i think like the five stars in the review is what the a log rhythm yeah Or whatever yeah so do that um, and any,
0: any help we can get is great because we have been really doing some awesome stuff this month and i and i'm stoked to to wrap it up with ld so welcome and uh let's jump in what you got yeah. Brent?
2: okay so um first and foremost what do you consider to be a good story?
1: What do I consider to be a good story? Um, like for my own taste, because yeah, you know, for I'm your inspiring stuff yeah. for other people, and I don't even know what I like anymore.
2: No, um, yeah, I'm, uh, for your own taste, because oh, when she says that, I forgot to throw one little accolade in. So LD also happens to be a reader for Levar Burton Reed's podcast. Oh, uh-huh. awesome.
1: yeah, I. I'm I'm all over the place. Um, <laughs> uh, what do what do I consider a good story? Yes, um, yes. I love uh, I love secondary world um, things. Um, it's it's exciting to me to get to see what an author can come up with that isn't based in our world. Something that they can put together organically that still makes sense to you know human beings as readers. Um, I love a good lush world build. I love uh, complex characters. I love a well-defined villain, um, not some not some character that you know had it bad in life and now they're they're they're, they're mean to everyone. And so <laughs> now we have to empathize with this thing. I love good, pure villainy, um, so that you know we we all know who it is that we're supposed to be rooting against. Um, I like a character-driven story. Um, I I think industry-wise, we are kind of pushed toward um, plot-driven narratives. Um, I like things that meander a little bit, let you get to know the world, let you get to know the characters. Um, Things that are, are, are cinematic and vibrant and... Th- those
2: are good words. I think I'll, I'll end there. Yes, yes, those are very good words. Yeah, no. Okay, that's cool. So um, I started off with that one because I wanted to make sure that, you know, I, I knew you would bring up some of these things that I love about your writing. So it makes total sense that, you know, what things that you look for also bleed into your own writing. So yeah. Um, Okay, so this this question, I'm changing it a little bit just because um, I want to focus on your writing and not so much everything else that you're doing. So, what? It's okay, you, okay
1: if you touch on that stuff. It's kind of like integrated at this. point. I mean, it
2: is. It is. I, I just know. I think I, I, we've known each other enough that I can know. I know how to like tiptoe around it like a little landmine. <laughs> I <know which laughs> yeah, I know what to avoid. But I'm, I'm going to alter this one question that we tend to ask writers. Um, for the sake of you trying to talk with about your writing a little more so um what three words would you use to describe your own writing like adjectives whatever like three don't have words. to be
0: three words linked just yeah three they words. don't have
2: to be the, yeah they could just be like three separate words that come to mind um uh,
1: let's see uh lush colorful if I can hyphenate like, Deliciously dark, like if we can make Probably that a thing, I'll take yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, it's things that aren't grim dark, but are dark and still stylish, and still not going to kind of drive you toward nihilism uh, <laughs> when you read it.
2: Yeah, I think um from uh Witch to Queen to God definitely fits that deliciously dark, uh, oh yeah, kind of mode where like. Where, you know, you kind of have this world where um, <laughs> this very not nice woman <laughs> is um, has decided, like, well, you're going to make me powerful and I don't care what it takes to make it happen. And, um, yeah. So, I, OK, tell us a little bit about that story. Like, what what kind of inspired it and, like, why that POV in that particular short story?
1: Uh, From Witch to Queen and God, which was published... I want to say in the inaugural issue.
2: Yeah, it was the first
1: one. Yeah, of of Bird maze monthly. I I I do that a lot. I like to be the first story in a lot of things for some reason. Um it uh that story it started out as a well, it, it is really. It's it's a vignette um of a character um I put into a larger universe. I write a lot of vignettes. I mentioned I like a character driven. Narrative vignettes are the prime opportunity to be able to do stuff like that. Um, And it follows um, an iteration of the famed uh, sea witch, Ursula. Um, And it's kind of an origin story um, type thing. She used to be human, used to be, you know, a witch who lived on land and noticed some sea gods were sort of abdicating their roles a little bit. And there was a power vacuum. She stepped in to fill it, um, was, you know, discontent with not being. Worshipped and so found some, I, I guess we can call it anti colonialist um, methods of pursuing her own uh, worship and her ambitions and things. And I enjoy um, seeing Black women, especially, uh, get to be able to do that. Um, they get to um, have ambition, they get to actually exercise the power that they wield and grow those sorts of things to their own ends, whether they be good, bad, or somewhere, you know, more agnostic. Um, And it was also an experiment. Um, That's my only story where I have um, a character who's mute. Um, So it was an experiment in trying to figure out how to convey um, language, you know, um, non-verbally in character writing. So got to play a bit with sort of the... The mermaid to human uh, magic, got to do the origin story stuff, got to chop off some heads. Um, and yeah, it was just a good time.
2: No, it, re- it reads like it. It reads like you just had fun writing it the whole way through. So, um, so okay. So th- that one is in a secondary world. And you mentioned liking stories that like have secondary worlds. Um, what do you feel this might be the one question that leads into some of the other stuff? Uh, What do you feel the value in secondary worlds are for Black writers? Uh,
1: For one, we don't have to tie any of our story structure, any of our world building, any of the conflict, to stuff that we have historically experienced, the the things that our identities tend to be rooted in if you ask somebody who's not Black. Um, So if, if we want to lean into being explorers or something of, of other worlds. We don't have to root that in um, having once been explored ourselves. Uh, we don't have to have how, what does exploration look like without the colonization aspect, the stuff that we experience? So doing it in a secondary world, we can sort of play around with that and answer those questions without having to rely on historical trauma. Um, I think it's also important too because um, there's we don't we don't get to do it a lot professionally. I mean, if you're if you're pursuing traditional publishing um, because of the gaze that you have to play into in order to make it, you know, to um to a certain level, we're we're not often. I, I won't say never because there are some some very good examples. We're in a very good age um, in terms of speculative fiction written by black people specifically um but being able to do that just as storytellers not as aspiring to publish authorship i think it does something um therapeutic it's it's cathartic for us to be able to imagine those worlds as well
2: yeah no absolutely that's why i love them that's why i love secondary worlds like um i think we talked about it a little bit when we had jen on here marshall in terms of like you know I sometimes I just want to ride a dragon. Can I ride a dragon and be black? Why do I? Who <laughs> dragons too? Like can I just be? So yeah, so that's, that's uh, I think that's the power of secondary worlds. So, oh, um,
0: well, can I circle back to yeah. on the other two words you used, lush and colorful? Like, uh-huh. I mean, someone might say those are almost in contrast to the, what was it deliciously dark? dark yeah. Uh, so, and I've read yourself like, mm-hmm. and I'm with you on the lush and colorful, but like how, what lens are you looking at that through and how does that apply to your work?
1: Uh, okay. So brief backstory. Um, I have a chromesthesia, so my brain sort of is rewired to mix up, um, sound and color. So yep. I do a lot of world building that's based in color and those colors are inspired by like playlists and things that I make um, music and stuff feeds into things like that. So when I say colorful, it's the use of color in world building to evoke certain atmospheres or to build um, certain character identities or certain archetypes, things like that. Um, lush. It's the degree of detail um, that I am or am not um, permitted to do depending on what the, the, the format is. Um, I am a verbose writer. I tend to have to cut down a lot of things. Um, so I do a lot of um, very, very immersive uh, world-building type stuff. Um, I don't see it as kind of like the polar opposite of um, of darkness. I think dark is a is a theme it can be certain events within a story or a through narrative of the story can be dark thematically but that has nothing to do with the richness and the vibrance of the world or the setting that the story is taking place in so if i can um you know do sort of a neon drenched um you know paranormal uh sapphic murder mystery type thing um but at the root of that is murder um, <laughs> murder and vice and assorted other um, uh, sins and things um, that's dark, but without losing the capacity to, to use color.
2: So yeah. I didn't make Marshall read that one, but that, 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 that is actually, uh, I love Dizzy. Um, that's such a cool character. Uh, well, and so, one
0: that I did read and sorry to cut you off real no, quick no, because, because you said you write, you're a very verbose writer and this, that first, well, I guess technically second paragraph from witch to queen and God, like, was that paragraph just, I mean, there's something so I can see this woman walking out of the ocean and that is just such a powerful, amazing image. But hearing you say that, I'm like, I could, I could read five more paragraphs of this. So yeah. was this one of the ones you had to like really trim down?
1: Um. So let me see. So this one was with my vignettes, I'm trying to, I'm using those as experiments too, to try and, Um, write shorter and shorter lengths. Like, I got into writing, um, writing novel length. Um, so my, my first, uh, my, my first novel that I pitched, um, to an agent also got me my agent. Um, it was, it started out as the, the first third of like a 300,000 word, uh, story or book or whatever. And then when I started pursuing (laughs) professional, you know, whatever, whatever. Uh, and, you know, you go to, to look at these word counts and they're like, oh, they don't recommend, you know, anything over, you know, 100, 100K. And I'm like, oh, well, shit. So <laughs> <laughs> I had to, that, that became, it became a trilogy as opposed to, you know, one uh, yeah. gigantic volume. Um, so when I do, let me see, I think Signal, you read Signal. I think I sent that to Brent to be like, hey, for me, this. Yeah. Um, yeah, same, wait, I don't know if I
0: sent him a signal, but no, I read No, you didn't send me that one. Okay. It's all yeah, my fault. Um, but I read
1: Signal. I blame signal, It's <laughs> a um it's a very short um was it present tense? I don't know. Um it was like it was something like two thousand words, and that's the shortest story I've ever written. Oh wow. Um, so with the the vignettes, um, I'm learning um, you know, better economy of words. If you just let me write a novel, I'll write a novel and it'll be 500,000 words and, you know, you're welcome. <laughs> but for, uh, for, for the shorter stories for, from witch to queen and god, that was just like, I, I spat it out because this was the origin I wanted for this character in this, in this world. Um, I think I had to do exactly one editorial pass on it. Um, okay. I don't think much of anything got cut. So this—that's probably one of my tightest stories, like ever, and I doubt I will ever be able to replicate it again. But um, (laughs) yeah, that's—I—I think the opening of it was very emblematic of the way I approach,
2: um,
1: you know, setting.
2: Yes, setting is like something you do so well. Like all of your. Even though I've read like everything, all of your locations stand out. Like they just each have this like distinctiveness to it. So, um, okay, oh, I want to ask a board question, <laughs> then I'll bring it in. All right, so board question. I kind of asked Jen this, but I want to ask you a similar thing too. Um, so, when you're creating a secondary world, what are the five elements of that world that you need to really? not just need, but you want to understand before you can dive into it?
1: Um, geographic proximity in the setting um, because that determines um, climate. Um, it determines architecture uh, to a certain degree. It determines what the people look like, um, whether they're native to that area or have emigrated from somewhere else and so have adapted certain features in order to live in a certain climate. Um, that probably, I probably led off too happy with that. But that um, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, flora and fauna. So I like, um, you know, all those things inform what the people there um, eat, where they where and how they obtain their warmth, what local economies and stuff look like, um, uh, what art art looks like there. There's another novel I've written that will not be seeing the light of day anytime soon. Um but the people there are all blind and so their architecture, um, their communication systems, most things end up being tactile. Um mm-hmm. and so that kind of informs the rest of the world and how they engage engage with the the seeing world outside of that that locality. Um I I gotta I gotta do more of that. Actually, I would like to work it into more things because it ended up being really cool. Um, <laughs> that how was many awesome. things is that? Was that was that two? <laughs> I think that's three. I think it's three. three. Okay, yeah, three. Um, okay, so so if I can do art and music as two separate things, um, just because music for me again leads to it, it sets tone and atmosphere. Um, it provides insight into. Religions and so on, so on, so forth. Um, And then um, history. Um, I I do, on average, about 200 years of back history from the starting point of any story. I I think that's rooted in our concept of generational trauma, um, in how you know our our present doesn't exist without certain elements of our past um those things kind of feed into each other um and then I end up having to cut a bunch of it because not no. relevant <laughs> um, but um yeah the the history i think is a big part for me i end up filling up um entire notebooks with it um and i end up actually being able to mine those histories for additional stories which is what happened with from which to Queen and God and uh, Chasira and a lot of other a lot of other stuff yeah I must really say
0: yeah because I know Chisira, um was from an, another universe that- yeah well you can feel in that one too how much history and stuff is there like just I, that that story blew me away just so you know I I I listened to that I was following along earlier today I was like I cannot I love everything about this I want to listen to it again it was so good. Um, I listened to a lot of podcasts and I just, I just, it was perfect in that, that in that format. So it was wonderfully done. Thank
1: you. It was, it was my first shorter than novel length thing <laughs> to, <laughs> to, to ever be written and um, ended up selling, which is, I, 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 it's biased because obviously ended up selling to the magazine I work on, but also, (laughs) um, it just ended up being good.
2: So I'm I'm glad
1: people enjoyed it.
2: It was well loved. That's what I was just about to say. Like, even though, despite that, it was very, it was a very well loved story. So yeah. One of my favorites. Um, okay. So we talked kind of like, so now I'm going to kind of bring it in. So we mentioned how, you know, your settings just like come to life. So when you're like approaching um writing a setting, like what are like some of the things in the back of your mind that you're like drafting it out and then maybe editing it? Like what are the things you want readers to notice the most about like your settings?
1: Um, I I like for them to be able to just sit in it for a minute. Um I, I don't like for plots to move at breakneck breakneck speeds when they don't have to. Um, I, I, yeah, I I like to be able to just, you know, contemplate a leaf for a second, Um, have a still moment in a setting while a character, you know, is thinking or processing or in transit to something else. I think when those things are less important, um, like action heavy scenes, um, Having, If I've done that work in advance, they can see the action and the story actually, you know, play out the way I envision it. And I, I, I like to think that those action things are more cinematic to me than the setting building part. So I like to have both of those things, but I don't think that the latter works without my doing, you know, the world building work for the former to get it to play out the way I want you to read it.
2: Okay, that makes total sense. I mean, I've read enough of. It. I mean, I've read everything. Um, <laughs> yes. and
1: yeah.
2: yeah, well, it makes sense because, like, the, you have. A, I think you have a very good job of, like, like being the cameraman and being like, "We're freezing right here. Enjoy this moment, and we're going to zoom in." And I want you. To... Yeah, okay. All right. That's <laughs> yeah. what I'm
1: going for. So that works. All right.
2: Yeah. No. That's that's how I've always felt. Like I'm like, oh, okay. The camera's panning over here, and we're going to focus on this for a second. Enjoy this. Enjoy this beautiful background. Like. It, you know, it's, I mean... It's,
1: it's my very Studio Ghibli kind of thing that I just want to bring to all the stories. Just like a moment of chill out and look at this amazing thing I've created for a second. Like, yeah. enjoy this, and then we're going to get into some murder. So,
2: <laughs> Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I know you love those movies. So, um, okay, I'm just going... Why do you love those movies and how do they inform your writing?
1: Oh, they're so pure. Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, it is, a Ghibli movie is, like, the storytelling equivalent equivalent of, like, a deep breath. You just kind of, you know, everything else, <clears throat> the, the, the tension and the chaos of the world fall away, and you're just, like, in this pastoral scene for a minute, um, with these frighteningly large, but also terribly endearing creatures, um, that, and there's there's no tension what, whatsoever, um, I think I try to work a lot of those moments into what I'll say are the favorite iterations um, I have of my stories, the things that I can just keep to myself because they' you know they make a story too long or whatever have to get cut at some point. Um, but I can always go back and revisit them and if they feel like that deep breath moment to me like a, like a you know Ghibli movie does, um, then I did what I set out, you know to do. For my right. purposes, I'm you know nobody else may ever get to read it, but it's there, um, and I, I think that's what makes my own reading enjoyable um, to go back to an experience because I don't do that a lot. Like I'm, I'm very much like okay, this is done, next thing, uh, <laughs> and that's that's writing, that's projects, that's you know everything else. Yeah. Um, so those moments are important to me as writing. Like okay, this is I was having a good day here. I I wasn't, you know, rushing to try and get words out to the page or whatever. I was just living in this world that I built, and it's a very nice moment.
2: Ah, Okay, so this might be hard. It may not be hard. Which one is your favorite? Okay, maybe it's hard. Yes, yeah.
1: Spirited Away. But that also feels easy.
2: Okay, I'll give you top three. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
1: Spirited Away. Uh, Totoro, obviously Love Totoro Um, (laughs) um, Howls, I think, is a good third
2: Okay, that makes sense Yeah, I feel like like that Okay That fits with what I know of of your work So yeah
1: (laughs) Yeah, it was was between Howls and Princess Mononoke Whose art book I have up here But I I think Howls Edges it out slightly
2: yeah, Princess Mononoke is my, favorite, yeah, my hands down favorite one. I like that one. one. Yes. Yeah.
0: That's I think my, I watched Totoro with my kids when they were younger countless times. So that's yeah. probably my favorite just because of that. Just how many times I've seen it. They love that movie. Um, yeah.
2: And that just, I mean, for me at least, that that really ties into like why I feel like, among other reasons, that your worlds feel so like, like, yes, they're deliciously dark, but they're also just fantastic. Like they, they have like, you know, they're you could, you can tell there's imagination in them. Like, you know, sometimes we have these secondary worlds that they might as well just be historical fiction. Like they, they just feel like historical fiction and the person just didn't want to do research as opposed to like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, as opposed <laughs> to, <laughs> it's so true. Yep. Yeah, as opposed to actually like building a world with imagination and like crazy shit that you would never see before. And like, and and what I love that you do is that like, like you said, you don't have to, people can just be Black without having to tie any, like, racism or oppression or anything else into it. Like, they just get to exist in these worlds because why Why should we take the horrors of our own world into our imaginative worlds, too? I mean, let's like, What, is a, what, is what does mean.
1: your world and what does your imagination look like without those things as, as identifiers? Right. Um, and I think that once you ask yourself that, question and maybe, you know, look at different art forms and, you know, different, different artists um, and, you know, the way they kind of dream stuff up. You're like, oh, I'd I'd never considered even approaching this specific thing differently. What does that look like, you know, from, from my mind? Um, And I, I like when we actually get to do that on the page.
0: Right. Can I, can I ask, we haven't talked about the other story that Brent sent me over yet. Oh Moses, Moses! Can we talk about that Ooh. for a minute? Because yeah. this is the first one I read. Um,
1: oh, sorry. <laughs> no, no.
0: I'm glad I did. I'm glad I did it this way because this whole conversation, you know, it, it makes a lot of sense. So uh, I just need to know. So what was your? I mean, you're playing with so much in this story. Like, there's so many things going on. Um, you know, PTSD. There's this magic element there's all this stuff going on so what was your I, I don't even know what i want to ask like what was the idea for the story and and um yeah just what was the idea for the story
1: um it was so with all of my vignette type things um of my character based um stories i tried to experiment with something different so my novella mm-hmm. um a ruin of shadows was um, me experimenting with writing um a much older uh female protagonist. Um and so Moses was happened because I didn't see um addicts or addiction represented in Specklet. Yeah. Um and that was I, it, it was it was kind of a, you know, I wonder if people are afraid of the subject matter um or if they're unable to write it um compellingly or with any kind of empathy. Um, and I have an addiction background. Um, so it was kind of a, a way for me to sort of process those things and see how a character who, you know, looked like a young me would fare, you know, with, or like what, what would the roots of that addiction look like within a sci-fi fantasy um, kind of situation? So Um, I have Moses, um, and she's had this, what I'll call a gift, um, you know, since she was at least very little, there's, there's no way to know whether there are more people with powers like this throughout the world or anything, because none of that's, you know, important. This is a very, you know, character specific, um, kind of thing. Um, but an inability to control it and having it go off kind of um in the wrong direction um and then a subsequent inability to process trauma those are things that actually lead to addiction Um, past past mistakes past trauma past you know errors in relationships things like that um they have the capacity to ruin very real people and in this case it ruins someone um with a power um and then there's, uh, the, the ending, um, for me, I don't want to spoil my own shit. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, it was important for me to leave the ending kind of open. Um, I wanted, um, her humanized and people who have, you know, similar life experiences. Um, I wanted them, them humanized. I wanted a redemptive moment for her, but ultimately, with addiction, those moments can be fleeting. So you don't know if it's going to be, you know, a straightening of a path that she's going to stay on or if, you know, this was just a moment and there's, you know, more things to recover from in the future. Um, But it's, I I think that it's going to continue to go down as like probably the most important story I think I've written, or at least the most personal. Um, I don't think I I'd ever put myself, I'm not really like a self insert writer, Um, but this, this story was probably the most important for
0: that. Well, and I, and I totally got that at the ending, uh, leaving it open. I I thought that was really, really powerful. And I want to ask you just because some of my experiences growing up, um, starting with that scene, the bullying scene and having that, like, um, that to me drew me in immediately because I've been in that moment and I wanted to vanish somebody like right then and there. And so I just want to say how much, how much that spoke to me. And I was like, okay, I got to keep reading your stuff. Like that, this that is,
1: that was, uh, <laughs> that was drawn from a, a real life thing. I had a, yeah. um, I was walking home from school one day and I had my, uh, my little sister. She's two years younger than me. I had her with me and this bully would just like not stop. And we were just like in this empty parking lot. Um, on the way home and things almost escalated, but like a neighbor came out and was like, chill out. But I was just like, I, I had, I have a temper. So I had that, that moment where I was like, like if I could kill you right now (laughs) and get away with it, I'd I'd be into it. Um, but I was in like fifth grade. Um, so yeah, that was definitely pulled from real life. And then, um, I, I think having my sister present, um, for that moment, in my life I think that fleshed out kind of a Moses' relationship with her sister yeah um, as well um, there, there was definitely some some diversion in how these things played out but um, having that element in there um, I think for me was important too it's important to have somebody who's supportive um, in in you know in life or whatever and um, yeah it was just. It was
0: a very important story. I'm I'm not going
1: to reread it a whole bunch of times, but I'm I'm Uh, glad that I got it out there.
0: Oh, it was so important. And and you're right. That scene with them in the bathroom um, was just really one of those moments like, I'm here for you always. It was very much a sisterly. It was like, look, I get you. I see what's happening, but I'm still going to be here and you can come home. And I think that's why that last line is so powerful too. So I, I, I loved that story. I know, obviously there was a lot um behind it but i just uh i thought it was really really well done so yeah
2: oh i mean it will it, it i mean he should talk about this in private but uh that 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 story like affected me deeply and you know i'm trying to get most as i talk about it but you know um so my ex wasn't at it so you know i i understand like that um in that beginning, where they had that talk, and she was just like, "You can come home," and you know, and what I appreciated about it is that you know, so often I think in media you don't see addicts treated with any kind of tenderness. Like it's just like you're an addict, you're a bad person. Are it's like are they they make a spectacle of them? It's like oh, you know, there's some um, we sensationalize like you know them going through withdrawals and whatever. You know, they're never given like any. Kind of like kindness and affection, and like I really appreciated that you know Moses was treated like with tenderness, and you know, and also too, I what I like is that um that you know the sister you can see it kind of broke her too in another way, and I think that's the thing about addiction that you know people sometimes forget about is like they think the addict exists in a vacuum, and that you know that um, the addiction doesn't affect the other parties too so you know for me personally it was just like i read that and i was like oh god somebody (laughs) finally somebody finally gets some of the nuances that like you know you never seen talk about and what i I love too that you showed was like despite her addiction she was still you know willing to do the right thing when she saw something bad happening and i and i love that because too often we get we see addicts as like we we think of them as complete total moral failures and like, you know, you just because you're an addict, that means you're terrible at everything else in life. Right. It's like that's not true. So yeah. yeah. i I really appreciate that story for me. It was just like the first time I ever really saw that kind of portrayal of a person. Yeah. So yeah, that was big.
0: yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. yeah. I just I had read it and I, I couldn't not ask the question. So we no, can no, we, we no, can no, really go there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm yeah. with you.
1: I, I mean, I think a lot of people can see themselves in a lot of those positions. Like you have the addict, you have the addict's family who's, who's also affected. And you have kind of this amorphous, kind of nebulous community of people who see the addict and the addiction, still treat them like people, but keep kind of a healthy distance to keep, you know, like the, the, the waitress in the diner who, who's mm-hmm. like aware of the conditions of, of her regulars. But, you know, she'll, she'll look out to you while, while while she's or while you're there. But, you know, once once you're not, can't put too much thought in it because, you know, you have your own life. Right. Um, so I, I want to thank Zach Brown Band for that one song that inspired mm-hmm. uh, some part of this. Um, specifically the, the the dancing in the diner scene. Um, I don't yeah. even remember the name of the song right now, but it's very <laughs> good and very, very effective. And so it, it, it worked out, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I hope it ends up, you know, reprinted and reprinted in more places. Cause I think, um, I, I think I, I've, I've been watching uh, people's reactions as they watch Euphoria. Yeah. Um, their reactions to Rue and her behaviors. And I see how Far we have to go in kind of humanizing um, certain elements <laughs> of addiction.
2: I haven't watched that show because, like, I honestly I'm scared of being triggered by it. <laughs> so I like it's,
1: it's a lot. Yeah,
2: yeah. I, so you know, just like I'm like, I don't think I I can I can watch that right now. I keep seeing people talk about it. And it's like I don't know if I'm like because I'm sure like there's there's incidents in there that are just going to like mirror experiences I've been through, and I'm just like, nope. I don't think I'm mentally. It's,
1: it's intense. I mean, yeah.
2: Yeah, but that I think that's what I liked about yours is that like there was some definitely darker moments in Moses, but again, like at its core, there was like a lot of like compassion, mm-hmm. and you know I think that's what um I feel like is missing from a lot of stories about addiction is compassion for all the people involved in it, not even just you know not even just the addict or you know the addict's lover or that family member or whatever like it was. You had compassion for everyone in the story, so yeah, I I just really appreciate it. I'm
1: glad I did it. Yeah, no,
2: it it was it was when you first told me you were doing it, I was like, oh, (laughs) I knew knew it was going to be hard no matter what. But like when I actually read it, I was like, oh, damn, like this is so much better and more nuanced than like so many other depictions of addiction I've ever read. So. Yeah, it was, exactly. it was yeah, you did a really great job. But um okay, so I do know how to pivot away. We're not gonna sit in the heaviness, I promise. Alright, All right, so um so you did mention music. I know music and playlists are like a huge part of your writing process, right? See, I saw your face. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah so when um approaching the playlist for like your writing. Are you coming up with the playlist beforehand or are you kind of like adding songs as you go or like how do you kind of build the musical aspects of your writing?
1: Most stories I start are inspired by a song. So uh, uh, what is my novella title? Ruin of Shadows um, was inspired by Lupe Fiasco's Hello Goodbye. Um, Moses, uh, had Zach Brown Band's Colder Weather. There was some SZA song that helped flesh out the atmosphere for, what is that thing that I wrote? For, 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 for Dizzy, The Dead Withheld, whatever. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So usually I start out, um, with a song or whatever. Um, and that helps me set, um, tone or it helps sets character motivation um, and then I'll do some writing and kind of when the vibrancy or the colors dim down on that like okay I've I've gone as far as I can with this thematically I'll kind of root around for songs um, um or at least return to artists that I know have a certain atmosphere about their writing like Hosier has you know a very defin- definitive um, kind of, style and has, and inspired, uh, deep blue. So, <laughs> there's, I, I have a song for everything. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll return to those, those artists or I'll seek out songs with a certain tempo or in a certain genre, um, to help me get through, um, an action scene or a particularly, um, emotional scene. Um, and then they all just kind of, they come together and I end up, uh, usually with like 15, 20 songs to a, for, for, for longer works. Um, for shorter ones, I'm usually around five to 10, something like that.
0: Well, that's cool. Yeah. See. Okay. So, and do you just have these uh, playing while you're writing? Like, I got to know a little most bit part, more. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. okay. Um,
1: Sorry, if Brent. There, um, right, right. If, if there are songs with uh, with like a, a, a lyrical relevance or whatever, I'll jot those down so that you know I can kind of keep those. Um. You know, I guess present or top of mind or something. Um. But for the most part, um. Um. I'm there for the instrumentals.
0: Okay.
2: So it doesn't distract you because I know some people say it doesn't do it to me, but like it doesn't distract you when you hear like lyrics as you're writing.
1: No, um, because for because for me with the 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 color and sound thing, um, I hear more of the 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 instrumentals and the you know the whatever. It's it's a long day. Um, <laughs> I, I hear less of the lyrics and more of. I guess the stuff that i need from the song mm-hmm. um i don't have a problem kind of parsing that
2: okay yeah that's cool so um i'm trying to think now where i wanted to go with this because i had i had a line of thought and i was like wait lost it. i got i got so much listening into you i lost my train of thought <laughs> <Uh-oh>. <laughs> so okay ah yeah fun question so um Let's just say, you know, we have a book out there in the world and you get approached to have someone do the soundtrack for it. Who are we getting? Or is it going to be... Do you have, like, a dream artist or is it, does it, or is it going to depend on the project?
1: Uh, Ramin Djawadi scores it. Um, depending on... I think it depends on the story what, like... Or, or um, Labyrinth could, could get in there, too. Um... I would love to see a collaboration between the two of them.
2: That'd be cool, actually. That would be that would be cool.
1: very cool.
2: Yeah. All right. Well, we're well now I want that
1: TV. and like nothing else now.
2: <laughs> yeah. See. Uh, okay. So this is one thing I also do with um with Elle in our conversations. I just create more work for her because I'm always. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I'm, I'm always asking questions and like, well, what about this? Are you working on this? Well, what about this character? So. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Um, I oh God, I really want to ask about her. By the law, if I can. Um, even though know my favorite, my absolute favorite, my okay. girl, yes,
1: yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so I have a favorite okay. character that Ellen has written, and it's it's not in the published work, but oh my God, it is such a I I literally if this, when, no, not even when, yeah, when this book is out in the world, I will be its loudest cheerleader and I will fight anybody who tries to <laughs> pretend like they're loud. <laughs> I love everything about this book, And there's a character in there and she is, um, she is devastatingly beautiful and heartbreaking. And she makes me so sad every time I think about her because I just, <laughs> like, cause I love her. I, I love her and I see her and I just want to go give her a hug, but she's like this completely tragic, beautiful character and um I think there's a through line between all of your works of these like people who who's, who are so very competent but there's like a there's like a core of them that's kind of like twisted and sort of a little bit broken. So um what what drives you to those kind of characters? Like what what kind of like makes you want to write that?
1: Um, Corinne, um, is a, is a secondary character, um, in, uh, you remember I mentioned the novel from the Gargantuan thing that got me my agent. Mm -hmm. Um, so she's a tertiary or secondary character in that trilogy, um, and, uh, is wildly talented, um, uh, but also has, um, is, is, is also in very great need of therapy. Oh. Um, she's there's some some familial things there. Uh there like there's parental abandonment or whatever, but she's she's incredibly powerful and very very smart and just prone to and and bipolar. Mm-hmm. Um and is just prone to making um disastrous decisions. Um that ruin her relationships with the people who love her. Um so all of that said, um <laughs> I um I, I don't like the flattening of characters as um good or evil or moral or um whatever. There is a complexity there. Now there's a complexity there that um if you're a villain should firmly keep you in the villain camp and you know you shouldn't be this this thing, this entity to be uh empathized with. Um, because I think once you lose that, once you consume too many of those characters, you kind of lose that gauge for what an actual bad person is. If you're constantly trying to, because bad people do exist, um, so if, if you're constantly trying to, to humanize them and understand them, um, I think you're going to be very unable to punch them in the mouth when necessary. I'm talking about Nazis, um, <laughs> for. Uh, for my characters, I like, um, all of my main characters are ostensibly women or femme. Um, and, uh, we have complex experiences and I like to get those things on the page in a way that, um, doesn't force the, the good or bad determination on them. Um, they can be, um, complex. Um, they can be heartbreaking. Um, they can, um, you know, they can end up being someone that you ultimately root for, but none of those things make them a good or bad person. Um, and so, uh, everybody's got some shit that they're going through and my characters have some shit that they're working through. And in the course of, you know, the story that I'm telling about them, it's essentially just a sliver of their entirely lived lives. Um, and so i like to get as much of their life uh, you know that the the personality traits about them that would be um unpopular or something those things don't stop just for the purpose of me having to tell this window of a story mm-hmm. um you know the the trauma that they ex- that they suffered in the past whatever lies in their future all of that stuff you know continues and i'm just picking a segment um of their life to put on the page um so uh if everybody's uh, complicated uh, than no one is.
2: I like that. Uh, well, so yeah, Marsh, you got something there? No, go ahead. Okay, cool. Well, um, I like how you said, like, some people are just bad people because I wanted to bring up Chasera and, like, the guy that captured her. He is just a bad person. Just like, a bad just, person. There's no sugarcoating it, there's no getting around it. And um, I think that you doing that made the story a lot more powerful for Chasera because a lot more cathartic for sure, because there's like no negotiation on this guy being a miserable person. And so I guess um, what I want to ask on that is when you were writing that story, I know sometimes there's a pressure on black writers to, I don't know, I'm trying to think of the best way to put it um, to empathize, I guess, or, or navigate the humanity of these awful people. And um, what, would, what would you say to any writer who is struggling with that idea?
1: Uh, just, just, just write the damn story. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, if you're, if you are writing a story or writing a character with the express goal of giving the audience a certain impression of them, I think at that point the character ceases to be fully human or fully realized because you're only highlighting um, certain things about them that are going to give you know the, the desired impression. If you're a slave owner, you're an asshole, and that's you know open and closed. There's there's no there's no nothing there. It's like oh well, he was he was wealthy, and he you know that's just the time he grew up in. This is entirely normal. No, nope. <laughs> no, no. Um, so. Tissero was uh, of a, a race of beings um, that ended up enslaved. I, I intentionally gave her, she existed with, um, with a power that made her essentially, un, like physically untouchable because I, I hate having the, the, the immediate identification of enslaved women as going toward, you know, sex trafficking. So these people kept her for reasons other than, you know, what you think. Um <clears throat> uh, she she existed kind of as a living art piece. Um and uh didn't want to do that anymore. And so her ultimate decision um to escape that type of bondage but not to immediately go back and Harriet Tubman the shit and go mm-hmm. and you know find some other people to liberate um that can be read as a selfish um, reaction or it can be read as actually the more normal thing. We, we, we know Harriet Tubman because she was, you know, of a select few people who ended up, you know, free, who went back. But a lot of people just ended up free and went on about their lives. So, so it that's, that's not a moral or an amoral situation, but you know, not everybody's going to, you know, grow up to lead a movement. Um, So it's, uh, it's always important to me to be like, okay, well this, I'm not trying to make Jasira the hero of anything except her own story. Um, And I think that with a lot of Western storytelling, we are kind of inclined to make a hero out of somebody um, in order to, I, I, I really don't know why. But um, because, because that's the common thing to do um, and also the most boring thing to do. Um, yeah, I'm just, I'm never interested in doing that with, with any of my characters.
0: But, but what I liked about the end of this piece was that there is that consideration. You know, there's that line there that says uh, uh, a, a niggling itch uh, beneath her skin suggests perhaps that in deciding to escape, she had also decided to abandon. Like that's a really powerful line because again, you're, you're not writing a Harriet Tubman character, but you're writing someone who's has escaped. That is free. You're dealing with that freedom. And then maybe one day, and there's a little bit of hope, you know, you kind of leave at the end there, but, but again, it's not about, it's about her freedom. And I think, and I think, I, I don't know. It's, I love the end of the story. So uh, yeah. I I think you really you really um, nailed that aspect of that. Like um, there's the, there's going to be that little bit of guilt. Like I didn't help more people, maybe. But at the same time, like you know, there's that whole you know you got to help yourself before you can help others. You know,
1: right? Yeah, she's she's just getting free. She doesn't know what what to do with this. She doesn't know what she'd even be leading people into. Exactly. Um, and so I think we kind of gloss over that phase of the the, the hero story. It's the yeah. Learning how to be a hero part. Mm-hmm. Um not saying that that's her goal or anything, but we don't go immediately from, I free myself, I'm going to free the rest of y'all right now and like have no, there's no planning in between. And right. I, I like to show the plan. Um, <laughs> and We don't get to because it doesn't move the plot forward fast enough. But um, it's something, it's something worth considering um, if we are going to write a hero narrative.
0: Also, like you said, she doesn't know where she's going yet. So how how can she lead others to where she doesn't even know where she's going? And I think that's an important thing to consider too. With that, yeah, right. Right. Um, Go ahead, Brent. No, you go ahead, Marshall. No, I was just saying we're 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 getting towards the end of our time, so we got to figure out if you have another question, throw it out there. Otherwise, we got to get to the last ones.
2: I have. Well, you know, I don't have a. Ooh, I do have one. Okay, one. (laughs) Just this last one. Okay, um, I'll be quick. So when you are world building, how do you approach systems of oppression in your world building?
1: How do I approach systems of oppression? Um, I make sure that they are I, I think I keep probably the classist um, oppression just because that's the one that doesn't lean as much on race based trauma for me. And I think that's the one that's most resonant, you know, wherever you are in the world. Um, <clears throat> and I keep it because growing up in an imperialist society, that is like the root of my existence, right? Like that's, that's, that's what I know um, about existing in a human condition. Like that's, that's, that's where my, that's where my head is. Um, so I try to, um, Make sure that the guilty parties um, have not nuance to them, but at least an interesting, you know, reason for why they're doing what they're doing. We know that it's objectively bad, um, but uh, we want to get, you know, why this character thinks that it isn't, or why they're okay with it being bad. Um, that's that's something that we don't get to see a lot. Like, yes, I, I know this is terrible, and I love it. It's great. It's <laughs> I, I I love being the bad guy. We don't see enough of that. Um, but they exist, um, but they're not the root of the story ever. It's, it's a background detail. It's an environmental thing. Um, and the characters within the story, they will float in and out of it, you know, over the course of their arc. Um, they, they will have encounters with it. Um, but I think very rarely will I have them be the person that's just like, I'm going to take the system down because again, hero narrative, it's, it's trite. It's been done. Um, You know, I'll, I'll leave that for um, the, I'll leave that for someone else. I'm not going to say what I was (laughs) going to say.
2: Okay. I'm glad I stuck that last one in. Um,
0: Marsha, you want to lead us with the last question? I almost sort of had another question, but I don't know if I want to out there. I mean, I mean do, you, do you have time for just one more little? Go for it. Okay. Yeah. So one of the things we didn't really touch on, um, and we don't have to even talk about this if you don't want to, but um, we, you know, one of the reasons we have this Just Keep Writing Will Black section of our show is just um, the things that are specific to Black and marginalized writers, right? So do you have, uh, on t- as far as world building goes, because I, I feel like that's what we've talked a lot about. What is some advice um, maybe you can give? I mean, I don't know how good you are about wanting to give people advice, but, you know, advice to other Black authors, um, aspiring authors, however you want to say it, um, or marginalized authors that that will help them in this, navigate in this murky, weird publishing world that we're all trying to get into. Does that make sense? Like advice yeah. as far as, not not just what will st- will help them stand out, but just... What, what what can you what can you tell them to help us out?
1: <laughs> um I'd say first, um like I'm like caveat, don't listen to me. But be, <laughs> be persistent. Uh mm-hmm. so I was uh I received 149 rejections before I landed my agent. Oh, um, shit. but this okay. is also um I also got my agent on the first book I queried. Um, a lot of people don't get their agent to their fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh book, um, yeah. and even then might not sell. So all of these journeys look different, um, but you have to be persistent. You have to have actual faith in and a love for the story you're writing, because at the end of the day, whether you progress at all in your publishing pursuits, um, the one truth has to remain that you are happy with the story. You have to, you have to be your target audience, um, or else that, like, even if this does go somewhere else, um, you will be disappointed in yourself for having put out work that you didn't believe in, um, in the first place and having that be the thing that you're known for. Um, so be persistent, uh, be humble enough to accept criticism, uh, where necessary. Um, but also be bold enough to tell people to fuck off when, you know, the criticism is not in line with your ideal. Um, for the story you were trying to tell. um and i just think i think a lot of this is about navigating that very narrow space um between knowing when to accept the criticism and when to tell people to fuck off. So um you know be careful who you say fuck off to. Yeah. Um it could end up shooting you in the foot at some point. Um be gracious in all communications. You don't know who knows who. Um and uh you know find friends uh, within, you know, find find a, a fellowship or a merry band of, you know, fellow struggling writers, um, you know, who you can take the complaints and the tears and the other things to. Um, because uh, if you leave that shit on Twitter, mm. um, it's going to come back to bite you. So leave it with people you can trust to keep it. Um, that's probably it.
0: Uh, I'm s- I, I, I'm so glad I asked that question. <laughs> thank, thank you for that answer. I really do appreciate sure. you so much. Okay. So my last question before I'm going to turn it to Brent for the actual last question. Um, I, I, I have links in the show notes for this episode to the three stories that um, we spoke about this evening. Um, but it, where's the best place for people to find you online, website, Twitter, whatever that might be. So we can get in the show notes where they could find your work and that kind of stuff. Sure.
1: Uh, So I am mostly on Twitter um, at L -L the Villain, E-L-L-E-T-H-E-V-I-L-L-A-I-N for obvious reasons. Um, uh, I am also at LDLewisWrights.com, which is where I keep um, the list of all of the um, all of the things I've published or will be publishing Uh, my blog. I don't keep up enough. I probably should. I'm lazy. I don't know what to tell you. Um, I am. Kind of on Instagram, but not really. Um, I, I think the most recent thing I put on there was my would-be Hugo acceptance speech had we won, uh, the best related work category. Oh. Um, which is fine. I mean, like Brett and I divvied up the, 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 the speeches. So we won for the magazine. He read, um, the magazine one. I just put the other one up on Instagram because why not? <laughs> um, uh, I am, uh, same, same handle over there. E-L-L-E, the villain. Um, I have a short story forthcoming from Lightspeed uh, sometime in the next couple of months. Last Stand of the East 12th Street Pirates. It is very stressful. In the Vein of Moses. So I apologize in advance.
0: Oh, I can't uh, wait! <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> so let's good. See. It's such a good story.
1: <laughs> um, let's see. Oh God. Uh, yeah, I think that's it.
0: All right. Uh, well. Before Brent asks this question, I just want to say thank you so much for being on the show. You're awesome. And I just, I hope we can do this again. So Brent, I'm going to let you ask the last question to take us out, buddy.
2: All right. So this is our last question. We ask it of all of our guests. So um, what keeps you writing?
1: God, my head would just explode if I stopped, wouldn't it? (laughs) I haven't. I don't know. I haven't stopped to figure it out, but that's what it feels like. Um, I write, um, because I have a lot of stories in me and that's the only way to purge them. (laughs) Um, I have no, I, I I wish I had something loftier. Like I write for the, 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 the the little L deep inside me who never had no, I don't, I don't care about her. She's (laughs) dead. It's fine. I am, I'm really just here because I want to see cool shit in the world and nobody knows what I'm talking about unless I write it. And I'm like, this is cool shit. Here you go. Um, but uh, I, I hope that's sufficient.
0: Oh, that's more than sufficient. Oh, it this, is. You might be yeah. our first head explosion one. I like that. Yeah, no, literally. <laughs> yeah, I could choose that. Yeah, we're the first person to say that.
2: But I, I think a lot of people will totally vibe with that answer. So, oh, for yeah. sure.
0: Oh, man. All right. All right. Well, thanks again so, so very much. Hopefully we can do this again.
2: I'd love to. All right. Well, there we go. That's our episode. Our last uh, Just Keep Writing about Black, of Black History Month. What a way to close it out. Thank you again for listening. And thank you, L, for uh, taking the time to come and talk to us.
1: My yes. pleasure.
0: Awesome. And this has been Just Keep Writing, a podcast for writers, by writers, to keep you writing. You can find us at justkeepwriting.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Feel free to reach out to any of us on our social medias, and please jump in our Just Keep Writing Discord channel. Links to all of that is in the show notes. Lastly, please support our show by going to patreon.com slash justkeepwriting. We offer daily writing prompts, early access to podcast episodes, and much more. Thanks for listening, and just keep writing.